You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We are starting a new series, so let me, let me kick it off with this. A couple of, well, some time ago now, I came into my office, it was a Monday morning, I brought my computer with me, which I take home over the weekends, and I set my laptop up, and I plugged everything in, and then I started working on it. I worked all day that day, and a good part of the next day, and then all of a sudden I noticed that my computer was no longer uh, wanting to stay awake. I mean, if I left it for just a moment, it would shut down. And I thought, this is odd. This is almost a brand new computer. And I bought it, you know, thinking that I would not have any problems like this. So being the tech genius that I am, I started to troubleshoot the problem. And I found in, in, in almost immediately that the amount of power in my battery was almost at zero. Almost. Just it was just a few, a few numbers away from zero. And I thought, why is that? I looked, and the power cord was plugged in on the side. And then I looked underneath my desk, and there it was, the other end of the cord just laying on the floor. And I thought maybe someone was sabotaging me, but I realized that I got a little sidetracked when I set it up, and I forgot to plug it in. And what is true about my computer, and I know it's true about yours, is that without power... It doesn't work. It doesn't. Nothing you can do about that. That is a reality of life. My computer is dependent in nature. It's capable of doing all kinds of amazing things that the people at Apple said it could do, and that's part of the reason why I I got this computer. But when it's all said and done, if you don't plug it in, eventually it will stop working. Oh, it can run for several hours on a charge, but it always requires connecting to a power source outside of itself. That computer is a lot like me and a lot like you. We're dependent beings as well. And for us, as Christians, the power source is the Holy Spirit. If we're going to live God-honoring lives, we must be plugged into a power source outside of ourselves. And yet few Christians are filled with that power that comes from the Spirit, a power that can change the life of the believer, and it can have such an impact through that believer and a collection of believers, it can change a church. We're starting a brand new series, as Stephen mentioned, called Holy Spirit, and for four weeks we're just going to look at and study the first few chapters of the book of Acts and get ourselves familiar with the Holy Spirit. We need to understand him. We need to know that he has the power to equip us and empower us as believers to change not just our lives, but the lives of people around us as well. We need to recognize the need to be dependent on him. Like my laptop, we may look really good on the outside, all the bells and whistles, and and we try very hard to look our very best. But for a lot of us, if we were really honest, we'd say that something's missing on the inside. I'm not winning the battles, spiritually speaking, that I should be winning. That may be because we've been living unplugged lives for a long time. And we can change that today. So the first question I want to ask is a basic question. Who is the Holy Spirit? 
Who's the Holy Spirit? You know, a lot of us have a hard time wrapping our minds around this idea of the Holy Spirit. We hear that word spirit and we think it's kind of mystical, don't we? Or if you grew up like I did in the era where the King James Version was one of the main texts that ministers used, they didn't call him the Holy Spirit, they called him the Holy Ghost, right? And I'm cool, I'm down with this whole idea of God the Father and God the Son and Jesus, but I'm not sure about this idea, at least growing up anyway, with having a ghost in my life, right? And then I went to Bible college, and this discussion continued. There was one aspect of the discussion that I kind of was, I was surprised by. That was the, the abuses of the Holy Spirit that I saw in certain people or certain churches. Now, you may be saying abuses. What are you talking about? Here's the deal. There are some individuals and some churches that would say the primary manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the ability to exhibit certain gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues. That's That's not a requirement anywhere in Scripture. But some people have said that. My grandmother, my dad's mom, her name was Laura Wilkinson. There's a picture of her. She was, without a doubt, one of the most spiritually influential people in our family. She was probably the spiritual matriarch of the Wilkinson family. A powerful, powerful woman of faith. When she prayed, God moved. I mean, he really did. And uh, I was mesmerized by it. In fact, she told me when I told her I was going to study for the ministry, she said, I've been praying for 20 years that God would raise up a preacher in the family. No pressure now, Monty. (laughs) I was only 18. She'd been praying before I was born. She was a powerful, powerful person with regard to her relationship with God. But there was a problem that she had. She, as great as her faith was, she had this tremendous, tremendous problem with her eyesight. She'd had cataract surgery, which helped a bit, but she had detached retinas, partially in one eye and totally detached in another eye. And so one day, she went to her church, and this was a church that you would say was, you know, somebody might say, well, that's a charismatic type church. Her church was like charismatic on steroids. I mean, they, I mean they, she had her own tambourine. I'm telling you, she carried to church with her Bible. She, they were into, I mean, this was You get it, right? Okay. So she comes to her church and says, would you pray for me that God would heal my eyesight? And this church believed that that God would, you know, you pray that God would heal you. And so they prayed. And at the end of the prayer time, my grandmother's eyesight had not changed at all. And the young preacher took her side and he said, the reason that you're not healed is because you lack faith. Now, I will tell you that there are a lot of things that could possibly be the reason she wasn't healed, but that wasn't it. This woman had more faith than 10 of us put together. It was amazing to me. I wondered in my mind, and I didn't know this until after the fact, so I, you know, my grandmother has been gone for a while now. But I wonder if that young preacher said the same thing to the Apostle Paul if he'd had the chance. You know, Paul, the reason your thorn isn't removed is you lack faith. Because Paul prayed three times that God would remove the thorn from his flesh, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you, and he left the thorn there. It wasn't, it wasn't my grandmother's faith. You can see how easily a person can use the Holy Spirit for abusive purposes. The primary manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is not a gift, though the Holy Spirit is a gift that God gives to us, and we'll see that in a minute. 
The primary evidence, though, of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. If you look at Ephesians, the fifth chapter, starting with verses 22 through 23, Paul says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance. Some of you may have patience there. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Those, those attributes, that comes as the result of the Spirit of God working in you. And he produces those. Now, some people have abused the Holy Spirit, but there are another group of people who are so concerned that they might abuse the Holy Spirit that they have ended up totally ignoring him completely. And that's not, that's not a solution either. He's a prominent part of the narrative that we read in the New Testament. And he's, we'll see, he's throughout the entire Bible. We can't ignore him. So nor do we want to abuse the Holy Spirit, nor do we want to ignore him. We don't want to do either of these things when it comes to him. So I want to introduce you to him through this series. I want you to come to know him. So let's answer that question, who is the Holy Spirit? If you have a Bible, you want to turn to Acts, the first chapter. That's where we're going to, we're going to park ourselves this morning. Acts is the history book of the New Testament church. In fact, the church in the New Testament the book of Acts, is actually the church that Northeast models itself after. That's what we want to be like. So if it makes sense that we would take time to, uh, to look at our model this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time to look at what Jesus did to prepare the first church for its beginning. Acts 1 precedes the beginning of the church, though, okay? The church will start in chapter 2. But in chapter 1... The writer, Luke, reveals the role that the Holy Spirit plays in empowering us as disciples. So, we pick up the story in Acts 1 where Jesus is about ready to ascend to heaven. All right, He's been crucified, then he rose from the dead, and now he's appeared to a number of different people. In fact, 500 people at one time. And now he's about ready to ascend to heaven. We pick this whole thing up in verse 4 of chapter 1. Listen to what Luke writes. On one occasion, while he was eating, that's Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Them is the disciples, all right? Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Over dinner, Jesus instructed his disciples to just hang out in Jerusalem until his father gives them this gift that he's promised them. And Jesus says, I've talked about this before. This gift is the Holy Spirit. The promises that Jesus had talked about on a number of different occasions. One, one instance is John 14, 26. He says this, he says, but the advocate... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then in John 15, verse 26, he says this, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So Jesus instructs his disciples, stay here in Jerusalem and wait 
for the Holy Spirit. So then we read in verse 6 and following of Acts chapter 1, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Right there. They think he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, liberating Israel and uh, allowing it to reestablish itself as a, as a powerful nation. But Jesus says, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The initial concern that Jesus' disciples have when he starts talking about leaving is this sense of feeling abandoned. So Jesus Again, in verse 8, he's done this numerous times in preparing for this moment. But in verse 8, he reminds them, again, of the promises that the Holy Spirit will equip them with power to accomplish their mission, which is we friendly, frequently call the Great Commission. But I want you to think about it for just a minute, what might be going through their minds at that moment. It's possible that these guys are freaking out a little bit as Jesus is preparing them for his leaving. What's all this talk? You see, they've been with Jesus now 24-7 over three years. They've been following him everywhere he went. They ate with him. They traveled with him. They listened to him teach. They laughed with him. They grieved with him. They had front row seats for all of his miracles. They'd been with him all the time. And the disciples had been on somewhat of an emotional roller coaster of late. Think about it. They saw Jesus die. They saw him executed on the cross. And believing in that moment that all hope was, was lost. It was all gone. And then he's raised back to life. That's an amazing thing. So they went from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And then, for three and a half years, if you accumulate it all together, they had been in the physical presence of the Almighty God. And now the book of Acts begins, and we assume that these guys are so pumped up because Jesus is alive again. Who wouldn't have been fired up in that moment? But then he tells us this. Look at verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Just like that, he's gone. He's gone, and they don't see him again. For three and a half years, he'd been there every single day, and now he's gone. I bet the thought that crossed their mind, I bet every one of them, it's not recorded in Scripture, but I cannot help but believe that every one of them asked this simple question. How are we going to make it without Jesus? How are we going to make it without him? Lord, you can't go. You can hear them saying this. We've had a hard enough time living this life that you called us to live with you right next to us. How are we going to do it without you? And it's not too far removed from some of the questions that we ask as disciples. Lord, if you were here physically performing miracles and teaching me the messages that I need at the moment, it would be a whole lot easier to live the Christian life and convince my family and my friends to live it as well. Jesus, if you would just come down here and be with me in my marriage or in this difficult, terrible job situation that I'm facing, it would be so much easier for me to live for you. The disciples like us were asking a question, how are we going to make it without Jesus? Well, Jesus had given them this promise 
before. He'd given them this, this installment of hope, if you will, for how they could make it when he was gone. Look at, let's go back to John 14 again, verses 16 and 17. He says, and I will ask the Father. He's, he's telling them, he's giving them the promise that he's made for, to them. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Now stop for a second. He says another advocate. He's saying, like him, this is another one. It's similar to him. Different, but similar. Another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. So he identifies the spirit. The, word can, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be, with you, and will be in you. And will be in you. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, men before long, I'm going to return and go back to my Father in heaven. But I want you to carry on my work here. Now, be confident in this. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you to carry out the work in your own strength. I'm going to ask the Father, and he will send you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will equip you and empower you to live your life for me. So, who is this Holy Spirit that Jesus promised? I want to give you two basic truths about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that if you miss these, you're probably going to be off-center on knowing who He truly is. All right? These are foundational, foundational truths. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit is a real person. He's a real person. Now, this is important because many of us have been brought up in this Star Wars concept of the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm talking about? Yoda says, may the force be with you. You ever heard someone say that with regard to the Holy Spirit? It's a force, may the force be with you kind of thing. For many people, that's the idea of the Holy Spirit. He's just a force, but he's not just a force. The Holy Spirit is a person, someone you can interact with. Look at what Jesus says about him. Back in John 14, he uses personal pronouns like he and him to reference the Holy Spirit. That tells us that Jesus sees the Holy Spirit like he sees himself. Someone you can relate to. You may be wondering, why is any of this important? Here's why, okay? If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Because you will never relate to the Holy Spirit the way that you should until you understand Him as a person. You will never relate to the Holy Spirit the way you should until you relate to Him and understand Him, excuse me, as a person. If we believe that the Holy Spirit is just a force or a power, then we will relate to Him by simply seeking power from Him. And if we limit ourselves to simply seeking power from Him, then we will miss the relationship with Him. Now, here's the irony. If we miss the personal relationship with Him, then ultimately we will miss out on the power that we were seeking from Him. Because we aren't interested in knowing Him. We're only interested in what we believe he can do for us. It's crucial that we understand the Holy Spirit is a person that we can relate to and that we need to relate to. Now, the evidence of that is found. There's a couple of instances or evidences in, in the uh, Scriptures that show that the Holy Spirit is a person. Let me give you two very quickly. The first one is the Holy Spirit has emotions. Now, only people can have emotions. Objects and things don't have emotions. But we read in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Grief is an emotion. And the Holy Spirit can be grieved, just like you can be. 
It's just like us in that regard. There's a second characteristic, and that is the Holy Spirit thinks. This is interesting. Again, only people are able or capable of thinking or retaining knowledge, right? Objects and forces, they can't do that. But what we read in Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 5, says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. He's talking about the Holy Spirit's mind. And then in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 11, the very end of verse 11, he says, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What Paul is saying there. The Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of the mind of God. A force doesn't have a memory. It can't retain knowledge. But the Holy Spirit can because he's a person. Now here's an important point. The Holy Spirit is a person that we can relate to and we can know. That should be our goal, to know him, and to know him at a deeper level than we do right now. The more we know the Holy Spirit and relate to him, the more we will experience his power in our life to overcome this world. And I have not met one person who has, who has said to me, I could use, I couldn't, I'm totally saturated, I don't need any more of God in my life. I need people all the time saying, I'm not winning in this. I need more, I need help. And the Holy Spirit will help you, empower you to overcome this world. Well, the second basic truth, if the Holy Spirit is a real person, the second basic truth that we need to focus on today is the Holy Spirit is a divine person. You see, when I said he was a person, he's not like you and me. Oh, he's like us, but he's not like us. You know what I mean? He's not like any ordinary person that you and I know. The Holy Spirit is God. He's divine, which brings up the discussion of the Trinity, which is a difficult thing to understand, not an easy concept. The Trinity is actually never used in the Bible, that word. It's never used in the Bible. But the concept of the Trinity is the three distinct persons of God making up one God is consistently spoken about throughout Scripture. The identity of the Trinity is, is simply defined this way. There is one God existing in three persons. There is one God existing in three persons. God revealing himself in three different persons. We know God the Father pretty well. I mean, from the very first chapters of the Old Testament, we're introduced to God the Father, and he's on almost every page of the Old Testament. Then we read the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, and we find Jesus the Son, and we're pretty familiar with him. He's the one that took on flesh and came down and lived among us and died for our sins. And then starting with the book of Acts, we start to come, become familiar with the third member of the Trinity, and that's the Holy Spirit. And one, one of the things that we will learn through this study is how the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the heart of every believer. He actually lives in the heart of the Christian. There are three distinct persons and one essence, one God. So how do we know that the Holy Spirit is a divine person? How do we know that he's actually part of the Trinity, that he's God? Well, throughout the Bible, we're shown that there are attributes that are credited to the Holy Spirit that are only given to God. For instance, in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, look what we read here. It says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve 
the living God. The writer of Hebrews makes a reference to the Spirit here, and he says that he's eternal, but only God is eternal. I think sometimes that we have this mindset, we think that the Holy Spirit just showed up on the scene after Jesus ascended into heaven, but that's not true. He's always been. He's eternal. In fact, if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, you will find him making appearances in the Old Testament. He's not just confined to the book of Acts. He's throughout Scripture. So the Holy Spirit is eternal. But there's another godly attribute that the Bible points out about the Holy Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit has the ability to create. He was there at creation. He has the ability to create. If you look at Genesis, the first chapter, verse 2, it says this, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit was there, actively involved in creation. In fact, when God was talking about creating man in Genesis 1.26, look what he says. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Did you catch it? He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. If he was just himself there, he, could have, he would have said, let me make man in my image. But that's not what he did. Why did he use these pronouns? Because there were three of them that were there. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity was there at creation. Well, there's one other example of how the Holy Spirit is God, and that the Bible teaches that he's exactly like God in the fact that the Holy Spirit is everywhere. He's everywhere. The theologians have a $10 word they use to describe this phenomenon. They call it omnipresence. God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere, and the Holy Spirit is the same. Only God has the capability to be omnipresent. But listen to what David says in Psalm Uh, 139, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. What's David saying? David's saying there's no place on this earth that I can go that the Holy Spirit isn't there. He's saying the Holy Spirit is everywhere. He's omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is a person. But he's not an ordinary person. He's not like us. He's divine in his nature. He's part of the Trinity. Get this in your notes. Because the Holy Spirit is a person, one of our main pursuits should be to know him better. We can relate to him, we can connect with him. Why does any of this matter? Why does this matter? Let me read to you just a a quote from Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God. This is a great book if you haven't read it. But he says, for some reason, we don't think we need the Holy Spirit. See if this speaks to anybody here. We don't expect the Holy Spirit to act. Or if we do, our expectations are often misguided or self-serving. Many of us are fairly capable of living rather successfully according to the world's standards without any strength from the Holy Spirit. Some of us have kind of settled for living life without this empowerment from God who made his deposit, his, his, he's living in our hearts. We have decided that we're going to go ahead and live without any strength from the Holy Spirit. 
if those outside the church see no difference between our lives and their lives, then they're going to question a couple things. First of all, they're going to question your sincerity. You don't really believe this because it hasn't changed you a bit. Or they're going to question your sanity. You're just nuts. That's it. You're just following this craziness. Or worse, they're going to question whether God is real. Because there's no evidence in our lives that says otherwise. I don't know about you, but I hope that my life is much more different because of the influence the Holy Spirit is having in me. You know, I worked uh, for Mike Bro a number of years ago at South and Christian, a great, great friend, a great man of God. And he said this one time in a meeting, I'll never forget it. He said, I don't want to do something that we could accomplish on our own. I want to do something. He was talking about the church. I want to do something that when it happens, the only explanation is that God did it. We could not have done this on our own, but God did it. You know, far too often what happens in a lot of churches today can be explained away. It's just a system, and it makes sense. You think about it. You put together a good marketing plan. You get some great worship. You get a good speaker. You get, a, you get all the right lighting, a couple you know, heavy-duty fog machines. Man, you can make some stuff happen. Church will grow because people will show up because the show is good. That's not what we're about here. You can pretty much explain that strategy away. We're going to do our very best in all those elements, trust me, but not for that purpose. So that people can have an encounter with God. What if things happened here that could only be explained because God showed up? What if a guy who's addicted to alcohol comes to know Jesus and he is set free from that? What if a marriage that is on the rocks, those two people come together and they say, in the name of Jesus, help us. And the Spirit starts to work in their lives and puts their marriage back together again. What if hearts are changed? What if the future of of an individual who is so depressed they can't even begin to think about tomorrow and God gives them a tomorrow? What if He gave people real meaning and purpose if that were to happen here the only thing that we would say is that's God we can't do that I promise you there's not a guy on this stage whoever stands up here man woman child who has any authority to make any of that happen it is all by the power of God period that's it period so if that happens here we will just step back and we will say, praise be to God, and we will worship him. That's why we worship, because he's so deserving. And you know the amazing thing about this simple truth? Is that it happens around here all the time. All the time. There was a young man in my office this week, on Thursday, came in and he said, I am done. He said, I've been battling alcohol and drugs for 25 years. And I said, why are you here? He said, because I've tried everything. Now I'm going to try God. I need him. And I listened to this young man just pour out his heart to God. God will change his heart. He'll change his life. It can happen here. If those kinds of things happen that only God could do, then we know that the Holy Spirit is a word. And those things happen here all the time.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, God, for the change that you made in the hearts of so many people who are here. You have had a transformational work going on in the lives of many, many people. And some of the testimonies are absolutely amazing. And yet, God, we know there's much work yet to do. And I pray today, God, that if there is some person who is here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would recognize they cannot know you fully because you're not living in their heart. Oh, they'll have an experience with your spirit because you'll bring conviction in their life and you'll bring, uh, you'll bring them to an understanding where they need to, to really acknowledge their sin. But they're not going to know the fullness and the empowerment that, that you give to help them overcome this world. It only happened when they surrendered their life to Jesus. Lord, let that be so today. Even if it's just one, we'll wait. We'll do whatever it takes. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for living in us. We pray, God, that you'll be glorified through all that we do in this moment, in this day, and the days to come. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never taken that step of faith, I hope you'll do that. I hope you'll do that. We're going to sing. I'm going to ask you to stand. If you have a decision on your heart, you can meet me down front. I'd love to talk to you about it. Let's worship you.